0: Hosted by WealthManagement.com senior editor David Lennox.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We have a returning guest this week, Vivian Lee Thoreen. Vivian is the executive partner of Holland and Knight's Los Angeles office and chairs the firm's National Private Wealth Services Dispute Resolution team. She's a litigator and experienced trial attorney whose practice, both in Superior Court and in the California Courts of Appeal, focuses on complex trust, estate, conservatorship, and guardianship matters. She represents individuals, families, charities, and financial institutions in cases, including will and trust disputes, contested conservatorships, and guardianships, breach of fiduciary duty matters, and elder abuse matters. Ms. Therene's experience includes some of the most sensitive and high-profile cases in her field, including that of Mickey Rooney, whose story she shared with us in her previous appearance on the show. Thanks for joining us, Vivian.
2: Happy to be here. Thank you very much.
1: So our subject this week is another celebrity on whose behalf Vivian has worked, Richard Pryor. Um, Richard Pryor was an American stand-up comedian, actor, and writer. He reached a broad audience with his trenchant observa- observations and storytelling style, and is widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential stand-up comedians of all time. He had huge success in basically every medium, picking up an Emmy and five Grammys along the way, and he also formed a legendary, legendarily hilarious screen partnership with fellow comedian Gene Wilder. Pryor was also well-known for his personal demons, largely because he was so fearless in addressing them on stage. He struggled with alcoholism and crack addiction, the latter of which was the root cause of an infamous incident when he lit himself on fire and ran down a city street. He also had seven children with six women across five marriages, although five of those marriages were to only three women because he married two of them twice. Pryor sadly passed of a heart attack in 2005. His death caused a bitter feud to erupt between his widow, and Jennifer Lee Pryor, who he married twice, with whom he had no children just to make things even more complicated, and some of his aforementioned children from previous relationships. Richard Pryor suffered from multiple sclerosis when he began to deteriorate back in the 90s, and as a result he hired Jennifer, who had who had previously divorced him in 1982 because of his addictions, to oversee his caregivers and act as his personal manager. In 2000, however, his son, Richard Jr., filed for conservatorship of Pryor, he alleged that his father had deteriorated to the point that he could no longer make decisions for himself, and then complained that Jennifer had limited access to the comedian. Jennifer fought back that Pryor had picked her, and an accountant to make his decisions as agents under power of attorney documents, and also as co-trustees of Richard Pryor's trust. The probate judge overseeing the case ruled in Jennifer's favor. In 2001, Richard and Jennifer married for the second time, and in an unusual move, they applied for a confidential marriage certificate, which is not made a matter of public record. So the Richard Pryor children supposedly didn't know of the marriage. And then after the marriage, Pryor amended his trust, naming Jennifer as a primary beneficiary and the person with the right to control all of his intellectual property, including his name and image rights, and all royalties from his comedy albums and performances. When Pryor passed away in 2005, his estate was worth an estimated $40 million. After his death, Pryor's eldest children fired suit against Jennifer. They accused her of elder abuse, fraud, forgery, and taking advantage of Richard's weakened mental and physical state. One major point of contention was California's statute prohibiting gifts and bequests to caregivers. But Jennifer prevailed under exemption to the law, allowing allowing gifts if the caregiver was a spouse. So Vivian, Richard Pryor's is one of the most complexly blended families we've addressed on this show, and some conflict was likely inevitable regardless of plan. So at what point of the story did you come into the picture?
2: Thanks, David. So I came into the picture after Richard Pryor had passed away, and I represented Elizabeth Pryor, one of his daughters, and we'll call her one of the older kids, because for a while there was a division between the older three versus the younger three. And she is the child who led the charge against Jennifer and made just a litany of claims against her, including the ones that you mentioned, trying to set aside the gifts that Richard supposedly left to her under his new estate plan.
1: Okay, so it seems as if this case really hinged on the idea of Jennifer as a caregiver. Um, Is that sort of a common point of conflict in your experience that you see in, in these sorts of cases?
2: It is common and as you described earlier i think the fact that jennifer uh, was both wife number four and number seven if we're counting the actual literal marriages uh, on the one hand versus the children with their differing mothers on the other hand that really set up a scenario for someone like jennifer to take advantage of someone like richard and i want to be clear from the outset that um, the multi-page complaint that we filed on behalf of our client Elizabeth, we never got an opportunity to really litigate and get to the quote bottom of it. So um, when I refer to what I refer to as the facts, they weren't actually established and they weren't findings made by court. They're just the allegations. Uh, But the care custodian issue is prevalent in a lot of our cases. And uh, really leads to what we now call elder abuse. And that's the concept of a care custodian, or to use a layman's term, a caregiver, essentially a caregiver who gets her award to marry her. Uh, and it, it goes both ways. You know, we have male care- caregivers who get their female charges to marry them and vice versa. But using the Richard Pryor example, that was the main, that was the crux of our argument, which is, Uh, the gifts that Richard made to Jennifer during his lifetime and through his estate plan that she received when he died because she extracted them when she was a caregiver, those gifts are void. They, They should be canceled out and she shouldn't get them. And, you know, when I was rereading the complaint that we filed back in 2007, the law was, Significantly different than it is today, and so um, had we applied the laws of today, meaning 2020, it would be a very, very different result.
1: Interesting. How has the law changed then? Well, what's the What's the main difference?
2: So the main difference is this: back in 2007, when we filed this, it's as you described earlier, David. So if you're a caregiver. Um, the law said, okay, if you're a caregiver, there's this presumption that any gifts that you receive or any requests uh, that you obtain in someone's state plan, they're presumptively void. They're presumptively invalid because we think based on this role that you played, uh, there was some sort of untoward behavior, undue influence, fraud, or whatnot. Um, but there was an exception, as you pointed out as well, that if you are married, And you have to be a caregiver or you start out as a caregiver and you get your ward to marry you then you're good you're golden and there is no exception that applies to you because you are basically the spouse you get to keep everything so at the time um, the mantra that we were using in our prior case was once a caregiver always a caregiver you cannot take off that hat even if you get someone to marry you it just isn't fair because as a caregiver, you're in this trusted position of someone who's vulnerable and who's dependent upon you. So one could argue that it would be pretty easy to get them to marry you, and the marriage itself insulates the caregiver from any kind of blowback. And that was the law at the time. A marriage completely insulated any and all gifts to a caregiver. Now, in 2020, And when I say 2020, I really mean it this year. It took all this time. And there was a change in the statute that only became effective, at least in California, January 1, 2020. So it took all this time to finally get some sort of um, carve out for caregivers who get their wards to marry them. And it's chipping away slowly. Trust and estate attorneys uh, wanted more in the way of voiding gifts or uh, determining that there was this presumption of invalidity for caregivers who got their wards to marry them. Uh, and there is a the partial carve out, but you know, the conundrum is that there's a conflict between trust and estate lawyers on the one hand and family law lawyers, because it's also very natural and kind of common sense that one spouse would leave the bulk of their estate to the other spouse, right? So at what point do you decide that that is not appropriate and you've got to really dig deep? So if we were litigating against Jennifer Lee right now in 2020, then there's no question at all that all of the gifts that she got during the lifetime and on death after the marriage, would there would be a conclusive irrebuttable presumption that she obtained those gifts through undue influence or fraud and they would be void. So huge, huge difference.
1: So correct me if I'm wrong here and also I'm mean, obviously not all caregivers are elder abusers and I don't think that needs to be said but we might as well just get it out there. Um, <laughs> right. Is, it, is there a proper way to give a gift to a caregiver? Is it possible in California or is there a proper way for it to be done? I assume that people wanting to give a gift to a caregiver is still fairly common even in the absence of undue influence. Um, Is is there a proper way to do that?
2: Absolutely, yes. There are mechanisms where you can make such a gift. And, you know, there are a lot of, let's talk about the boomers. There's so many boomers right now, right? Um, The caregiver population is going to increase the need is going to be there. And, you know, I only see the, the ugly cases, but there are many cases where people want to live their longtime caregiver's gifts. Um, they're grateful, they're appreciative, all of that stuff. And you're right. They're not all undue influencing fraudsters who get their wards to marry them. That's really, really extreme. Um, and so there are mechanisms under our code. I know there are mechanisms under other jurisdictions that permit this.
1: So, and again, correctly from her, my understanding is that California is is ahead of the curve for the most part in uh, in offering these protections uh, to the elderly. But if I'm an advisor or an attorney in a state that doesn't have a statute like this, that doesn't have this um, this presumption protecting um, my elder clients, what are some of the signs that I can look for that a caregiver is is exerting undue influence versus just you know doing their regular job?
2: Sure. One would be, and if there are advisors out there, that the advisors are on the verge of or do get terminated. A common, bright, obvious red flag for elderly folks who are being abused is that there is a sudden and abrupt change in longtime advisors, professionals, uh, whom the elder has worked with for many, many years. Financial advisors, estate planning attorneys, even doctors, Uh, medical professionals and the like, because uh, those are the people who are going to have the greatest familiarity with the elder and would know that something is amiss, right? So the easiest thing for uh, an elder abuser, whether they're a caregiver or not, to do is to just start with a fresh slate and get new advisors who are potentially more loyal to the caregiver or elder abuser.
1: And it's such an interesting, like an insidious action on the case of the abuser too, right? Because not only is it just smart on their part to sort of take away the dissenting trusted voices, uh, they're sort of the only trusted voice. But also in so doing, if I'm an advisor or an attorney who gets fired and I you know, bring up an issue of elder abuse, it also kind of looks like I have sour grapes and I'm upset because I got fired. You know, So it's sort Absolutely. of like this double, yeah.
2: Well, that in, um, in a lot of, not in a lot, but in uh, at least a handful of jurisdictions, financial advisors and bankers, they are mandatory reporters of elder financial abuse. So they have the cover of using their jurisdiction's elder abuse statutes to make a report. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that they know for a fact that it's going on, but there's something that doesn't look right. But, you know, in the cases where we have a caregiver who is really moving in on the elderly person, oftentimes there are children or neighbors or other family members who likely exist, but they're not as close to their family member as they used to be, or they're estranged or something. There, There's an opening that the caregiver takes advantage of. Um, in a family that is very close-knit, communicative, and there's a lot of love, uh, a caregiver has much less opportunity to really alienate and isolate and take advantage
1: of an elderly person. And that's also, I think, where advisors can really come in, right? Because um, even if you know it's a very loving family and they just there's just physical distance uh, in between the closest relatives, you know, the advisor, you know, assuming the person's you know, coming in a couple of times, a year, you're seeing the checks, you're seeing the receipts in a way that you know the kids aren't seeing, and you know when they call on the phone or come for the holidays. So, in a very real way, advisors are sort of the first line of defense here.
2: Absolutely. And the advisor, like the estate planning attorney, for example, is going to see that, oh, well, gee, for the last 20 years, you've wanted to leave your estate X, Y, and Z. And now you're telling me you want to cut out your family and leave everything to your caregiver. I mean, that just sounds bizarre and crazy, especially if the caregiver is a relatively new presence in the elder's life. It's just kind of a common sense knee-jerk reaction. So it just doesn't make sense unless You're the elder and you're being what I'll call duped by a caregiver who's really um, manipulating and taking advantage of a vulnerability that the elder has. And that is what happened to Richard Pryor. I mean, as you described, he at the height of his career, I mean, he was just the big man on campus. But in his later life, uh, after he was diagnosed with MS, by the late 90s, I mean, he was wheelchair bound. He couldn't talk. He had trouble swallowing. He couldn't even sign his name. I mean, he was dependent for everything. And so that is really uh, something that we allege Jennifer completely took advantage of. Uh, And then you've got the kids who are kind of competing for their father's attention. You know, they have different mothers. They're at different places in their lives and careers. And uh, I would say that, uh, assuming the allegations are true, Jennifer was quite strategic in pitting one kid against the other or one against the others, and just um, also really capitalizing on Richard Pryor's fear uh, that many elderly people have, which was, I don't want to be in a nursing home. And so what do you tell a person that you have total control over? Your kids are plotting against you. They want to put you in a nursing home. So, I mean, his situation, uh, his deterioration really created the perfect storm for this kind of setup, and it's just really tragic.
1: Yeah, and it's very interesting because, again, we have the same sort of insidious or similar sort of insidious thing with with getting rid of long-term advisors is that if a caregiver comes in and and they – or, you know, any elder user comes in late in life and marries, you know, the person, the the elder, then now they're the step parent of a lot of these kids, and I mean, stepmom or stepdad versus step kid is like the oldest story in will contests, right? So it, it covers so much of being like, well, you just hate me because you're my stepdad, you know, or you're just upset because you're not, you know, my kid or something like that. It's just like it makes it look like a much more mundane issue than maybe it is.
2: True, true, especially uh, these days where you have. Um, a estate plan where the step-parent as the surviving spouse um, gets the benefit of the income or whatever assets during that step-parent's lifetime and whatever's left over on the step-parent's death goes to the children. But you've got a step-parent who is younger than the children from a former marriage. So there's almost no chance that the kids from the prior marriage are gonna inherit. That really sets up a terrific tension.
1: Yeah. I also think it's interesting cuz obviously we're using the term elder abuse here and elder care. Um but elder is really it's a it's kind of a sliding scale nowadays in both directions. Um people are living longer and but you know also in instances of dementia are increasing and things like that. So I think it's important to point out that you know when we think of an elder people think of someone who's 75, 80 years old. Richard Pryor for I mean when this really started happening wasn't even 60 yet, right? I mean he he had had an he had the MS diagnosis and he becomes sort of infirm, but he wasn't, you know, by technical age-wise necessarily what you would look at and be like, this is an elder.
2: Right. I, I do not remember how old he was at the time, but um, more to your point, yes. The elder abuse statutes are broad. In California, it's anyone 65 or older and who lives in the state, but it's really anyone who's 18 or older. So if you're between 18 and 65... You're considered a dependent adult because um, and there are specific definitions associated with that but if you're over the age of 18 and you have trouble living uh, by yourself on a day-to-day basis and you've got to really rely on help bridge prior would easily have fallen under that statute as well so and there are other jurisdictions um, that have really broad quote elder abuse statutes towards anyone over the age of 18. some states have anyone over the age of 60 Um, Which is really young, so it just kind of runs the gamut. But I would say, generally speaking, if you're an adult and you have physical, mental, um, or other limitations that prevent you from living as an independent person, uh, there is likely a statute or provision under an elder abuse statute that you would fall under.
1: Yeah, and it's just something I point out for, you know, advisors and and other professionals to keep an eye on, just. Because you may not be looking for this sort of abuse in in a client who's in his you know early fifties or mid fifties, even though it's entirely possible that they could be starting to suffer from from some of these, uh, I guess, infirmities that that would you know make them open to this sort of thing. So uh, it's one of those you know it seems like semantics almost, but it, it's almost impo- important to look past the semantics here.
2: Right. Exactly.
1: So one of the points here, um, in this case was that an issue of attempted conservatorship came up. Do you mind just giving our audience a quick overview of of sort of what a conservator does and sort of what role it can play uh, in this whole dance?
2: Sure. There are two types of conservators, and in other jurisdictions are called guardians, but it's the same thing. There's a conservator of the person and a conservator of the estate. The conservator of the person assists an adult uh, with day-to-day decisions make sure they're going to eat, uh, where are they going to live, they're going to brush their hair, comb their teeth, get groceries, and make sure just their day-to-day living is um, appropriate. A conservator of the estate is someone who takes care of all of the financial aspects of a an adult's uh, existence, paying bills, uh, including extends to participating in litigation, uh, also estate planning, and the like. And it's not uncommon for... An adult to have just one of the other. You can have conservator of a person, you can have conservator of the state, or you can have both. And you can also have different people in each of those roles working together, or you can just have one person filling both roles.
1: So, just a bit of time. I'd just like to, as I do with all of my guests, kind of put you on the spot here at the end. But um, this is obviously a very complex issue. But if there's just like one piece of information or advice that, that you think that our audience, you know, advisors out there need to keep in mind when it comes to sort of issues of caregivers and potential elder abuse, you know, what would that be?
2: I think it would be the same message as the one you and I talked about when we we're talking about Mickey Rooney, which is to keep in touch with your family members or keep in touch with your clients and really maintain an open line of communication uh, because it's really much more challenging for a caregiver or an elder abuser to come in and take advantage of your loved one if there is a really solid family unit. Um, And the other advice I would give is, earlier rather than later. I know we all think we're gonna deal with it tomorrow or I'm gonna live forever or some iteration of that, but it's better to well, get your affairs in order, get your estate planning documents in order while you have your all of your cognition, while you have just the ability to weigh the pros and cons and the consequences of the decisions you're going to make versus when you are much more vulnerable. And I would consider talking to your advisors about including language that would protect you as someone who's preparing your estate plan, um, to protect you from attacks from caregivers or elder abusers such that it, they could undo whatever documents you're having prepared now.
1: Yeah, It really is amazing. Some 35 odd episodes into this show, depending on when this actually publishes, you know, and talking about all manner of topics all, all across the estate planning board. The communication is the like the single through line through everything, or it's just everyone, you know, more, more often than not, when I ask that question at the end, people say, you know, the guest will say, it's communication. Because it really is true that you know, it's so much easier to solve a problem before it starts than it is after it becomes a problem. And, and communication really is the way to make that happen.
2: I totally agree. In the cases that I get, and I only get them when they're in the ugly or about to become ugly phase, Someone is estranged. Someone cut someone else off at some point in time. There was some sort of breakdown. Families that are close-knit or have this line of communication, I don't meet those families. My colleagues (laughs) who are doing the estate planning or administration. They get to interact with all of those intact families. I only meet the dysfunctional ones. And the running theme in my matters is that there is some breakdown there at some point.
1: Well, that's all the time we have. I'd like to thank uh, Vivian Leithorin for being just a fantastic guest once again.
2: Thank you very much, David. my
0: pleasure.
1: And uh, for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates. Thank
0: you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available.